0: Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Kaerna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Saturday, the 1st of October. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible. And as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroglob-Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers. And he always includes... A Tangent of Astronomical Wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist or particle physicist. So let's zoom over to Adelaide now to get your sky guide from Ian. Hello Ian. Hello Brendan. Great to be speaking with you again, Ian, and welcome back to Australia. How are you feeling?
1: I'm feeling actually pretty tired. (laughs) Strangely enough, I didn't get to see very many stars when I was in the northern hemisphere. There was too much light pollution and clouds around. So I I got one night where I got to see the stars um, upside down, but most of the time all I got to see was clouds. I hope you had a very good time in Maastricht and your
0: toxicology conference. But right now, can you tell us, Ian,
1: what's up in the sky for the month of October? I certainly can. Now, October isn't quite as exciting as our previous month. but We've got a couple of nice things happening. Most of the planetary action is in the evening skies from this month. Jupiter and Saturn are both post opposition, but they're still bright and are still excellent for observing the solar telescope. So let's start, as uh, like normally do, with the phase of the moon. So October the 3rd is the first quarter moon, October the 10th is the full moon. This is a, uh, a, a good time to be uh, sitting reading your uh, catalogues because you won't be able to see much in the sky with the full moon. October the 18th is the last quarter. October the 25th is the new moon. So from about the 18th to the uh, 25th will be an excellent time to dark sky objects. Excellent. Now, we've got a double perigee this this month. Perigee uh, is like October the 5th and October the 30th. The October 30th month is uh, on to put in your diaries because November the 1st, Will be a perigee first quarter moon. Uh, remember, we go a bit uh, bananas over perigee syzygy full moons, but the perigee first quarter moon is of course bigger than the apogee first quarter moon, which occurred earlier this month. If you manage to get some images of the apogee first quarter moon, it'll be really good to compare them with the perigee first quarter moon on November the first. Uh, the apogee moon is October the seventeenth. So that that's the moon let's look at the evening sky saturn is visible all evening evening line it's setting in the early morning somewhere between starting off around about three o'clock in the morning uh, in the early month and around about uh, two o'clock in the morning by the end of the month now remember saturn was at opposition on the 15th of august but it's still very bright it's still fantastic for telescopic observation. And it's visible high above the northeastern sky when the sky gets fully dark uh, 90 minutes after sunset. And there's uh, not as many moon events uh, with Saturn as there is for uh, Jupiter, because only only Titan is bright enough to see really easily in small telescopes. But on the 9th, 17th, and 24th, Titan is close to Saturn, uh, looking uh, rather nice. The 9th to the 24th, Titan's above Saturn, and the 17th, Titan is below Saturn. Now, Saturn is forming a line with delta and gamma Capricorni. So you may remember in previous months, it was forming uh, firstly a nice triangle, then a shallow triangle. That's flattened out into a line, and it comes close to the uh, less bright star, Iota Capricorni by the end of the month. So you have a, an interesting uh, lineup of a, of a modestly bright star, Saturn, and two, and, um, two uh, brightish stars, uh, all lined up very nicely. Good. Now on the fifth, the waxing moon is close to Saturn again. Saturn uh, is bright; is one of the brightest objects uh, in that uh, northern part of the sky at the moment. But you're still uncertain which one is Saturn. Uh, on the 5th, the Waxing Moon is close to Saturn, so the brightest object close to the Waxing Moon is Saturn. And If you remember its location from, uh, over the next few nights, you'll be able to find it again uh, quite easily. Good. And still the prominent hero of the hour is Jupiter. Jupiter is rising uh, shortly before the sky is fully dark, and it's climbing higher in the evening sky. And now, you remember, the Jupiter was opposition on September the 27th, so it's still in a very good position. This, of course, was uh, a very this is a very good opposition. It's the closest that Jupiter has been since 1963, and will be the closest uh, we'll see it for about another hundred years. Terrific. Even though Jupiter's past opposition, like Saturn, because it's so big and so relatively far away, the actual change in size is not huge. Now uh, later on this this month. Uh, or uh, this year in November and December, we're going to see Mars swell from a tiny disk into a largest disk um, very rapidly and then shrink down. So unlike Mars, Jupiter and Saturn increase in size relatively slowly and not hugely. So you've got plenty of time to see Jupiter in all its magnificent glory uh, all this month and well into next month. So if you missed out on the 27th, don't worry. You've got lots of time to view it telescopically uh, or in binoculars. And at the moment, Jupiter's visible the whole night. So you can see it from basically from when the sky is fully dark uh, all the way through to astronomical twilight in the morning. And again, if you're not too sure which is Jupiter, which is rising over the northeast horizon and in fact is the brightest object. In the sky aside from the moon at the moment if you're not too sure which one is jupiter on the eighth and the ninth uh, jupiter is firstly above and then below the waxing moon so you can use the moon to locate jupiter as i said jupiter's moons are always nice to look at and you can see them lining up nicely in binoculars and so there's some really good lineups on the 5th 12th 18th 20th and 30th so plenty of time to uh, with those. that uh, have got nice close acquisitions, or uh, in the, the uh, 18s, you've got all all the um, moons lined up on one side of Jupiter, which will make it particularly nice. Excellent. Uh, will be indeed excellent. And unfortunately, because I managed to hurt my arm tossing uh, baggage around the aircraft. Moving the telescope around is a bit difficult at the moment, but hopefully my arm will be uh, better by the time the uh, October 5th comes around so I can get a good view of the uh, Jupiter's moons then. Let's go to the morning sky. Now, Mercury turns to the morning sky this month, but it never really makes it out of the twilight low. So if you've got a really flat horizon, uh, like a desert or an ocean, to your uh, eastern horizon, You'll be flat out seeing Mercury in the in the uh, at civil twilight. Venus is still lost in the twilight, you won't get to see that until it reappears in the evening sky in December, and then really late December, when you can probably see it. Mars, however, is uh, becoming brighter and brighter, and is really quite prominent in the sky at the moment. Now, Mars has been travelling down the horns of Taurus the Bull. Away from the Hyades and its companion, Red Aldebaran. So, uh, last month it formed the second eye, the Taurus the Bull, but now it's uh, travelling down the horns. And by the end of the month, it'll be between the tips of the, the horns of Taurus the Bull, Beta and Zeta Tauri. Now, on the 15th, the waning moon, Mars, and Beta Tauri, which is also known as Elnath, will form a nice little triangle in the sky. So that's what's happening with the stars. But this month, we've also got a meteor shower. And so we've got the Orionids turning up. Now, the Orionids are a, a worthwhile shower. They're not as spectacular as the other showers. It's best seen between 2 and 4 a.m. in the morning. And the radiant, that is the position where the meteors that appear to uh, shoot out from in the sky, is just under Betelgeuse, the red star in Orion. So it's really easy to, to find. You just look for the source of Orion look for the red star underneath it, and you should see the meteors coming from uh, around that area. Awesome. Indeed. Now, this year, the waning crescent moon is over in Gemini, and it's not interfering with the viewing rates. So we should get a reasonable view. Predictions from the NASA uh, Meteor Flux uh, app, app suggests you should be able to see a meteor every four minutes or so. Now, the further north you are, the more meteors you will see.
0: And it's a nice time of year to get out. It's not too cold, Uh, it's not too hot, not too many mosquitoes around.
1: Exactly. The peak generally runs from the 21st to the 23rd. The meteor flux estimators are predicting that the best rates will be on the morning of the 23rd. Uh, I think this this is in part because by the 23rd, the moon will have... uh, pretty well disappeared from the sky, making it easier to see. So uh, it'll be uh, uh, quite nice. And you know, again, if you start uh, popping out, looking around on like, the 21st, 22nd and 23rd, uh, you've got a good chance of seeing something nice. And even, though, even if you don't see many meteors, you've got the uh, Orion uh, in your directly in your field of view, absolutely beautiful. You've got Mars uh, in the... Uh, in the in Taurus and the Hyades and the So You've got plenty to look at while you're watch, watching meteors. <laughs> Excellent. We'll be there. Okay, stars. Our friend the Scorpion is setting around about midnight, so it's now no longer uh, dominating the mid-sky, mid but it's now, now low in the uh, western sky, but still visible for quite some time. Uh, However, it means that the various clusters that are in the uh, tail of Scorpio and uh, Sagittarius are becoming harder to see. On the other hand, as Scorpius is setting, its nemesis Orion the Hunter is rising in the east, giving us a glimpse of the summer skies. Of course, with uh, Sagittarius and uh, Scorpius uh, setting, the officially the galaxy season for the Milky Way is coming to a close. But as I said last time, the Andromeda galaxy is rising in the late evening, and the small Magellanic cloud is at its highest in the late evening. So around about midnight, uh, Andromeda is uh, uh, almost at its highest. The same goes with the small Magellanic cloud. So you've got two good galaxies to have a have a look at, and the large Magellanic cloud is in, roughly in the mid sky. Of course, the Small Magellanic Cloud uh, is got our our my favourite uh, globular cluster, or my second favourite globular cluster, 47 Tucana. The Andromeda Galaxy is quite low to the horizon for most of Australia, but still is uh, maybe very hard to see with the unaided eye, but it's still readily visible in binoculars. Our friends, the Southern Cross and uh, Carina. Uh, are basically uh, unobservable most of this month as they're too low to the horizon uh, unless you're up in uh, up, right up in northern Australia, and so most of the bright uh, constellations and stars are now too low to see, and the sky is dominated by a, a bunch of faint constellations such as Aquarius, Capricorn, uh, Piscinus Australis, Ros and uh, the, uh, Aaron Dias and things like that. Nonetheless, there's still enough going on in the sky to get out, have a look, and see some interesting things.
0: Really looking forward to October. Now, Ian, have you got a tangent for us for this month?
1: I do have a tangent. Now, by now, everyone will have seen the spectacular images of the double asteroid redirection test with the dark spacecraft's impactor crashing into the asteroid uh, dimorphus, which is the mini-moon, otherwise known as the Diddy moon, of the asteroid Diddymos. And there's some really spectacular stuff. You've got the view from the impactor as it's coming in. You've got the view from the uh, leaker cube behind it showing there's a massive explosion of dust and gas. You've got the ground-based telescopes showing this incredible puff of dust shooting out from the asteroid pair, the asteroids uh, from Earth, you can't distinguish the asteroids, they're they're too close together. But you can see this massive puff of dust zooming out. And from the JWST and uh, Hubble, you can see the asteroid pair brighten and uh, streams of dust coming out. Um, The most recent ground-based telescopes now show that the asteroid pair has a long dust tail. Unfortunately, Leica Cube has has gone past Diddy Moon, so we don't know uh, what's happening, uh, how big a crater was blasted out, and uh, how much of, of the bubble pile that was the asteroid got rearranged. And we have to wait until next year when a companion mission comes up to have a look at the uh, the damage. Awesome. But I was really uh, chucked and you know, I've, I've been looking every day for new images to see what's been going on. And especially the stuff from the ground-based telescopes has been beyond what I'd expected, especially now that uh, Didymus has this long dust tail that makes it look almost like a comet. But, you know, this isn't the first time a spacecraft has been smashed, smashed to an astronomical object to gain information. For science! That's probably not going to be <laughs> exactly for oh, science. Now, you may remember a few episodes ago, I talked about asteroids smashing into each other and uh, the pseudo uh, cometary tales from a couple of, of asteroids as a result of them impacting each other. But in this tangent, I'm going to talk about spacecraft smashing into things. Yep. Because that's far for science. Now, our companion moons is littered the spacecraft. Were either deliberately, for example, a third flight mission, leftover ascent modules and boost stages, or accidentally, for example, Surveyor Four, some of the Soviet lunar landers, and a random rocket booster which impacted on the fourth of March uh, this year. Now, some of the early impacts were due to not having the technology to slow down, and some of the other impacts were because the uh, the landing stages failed, but some of the impacts were for science. For science! For example, the impact of the Apollo 12 lunar modular ascent stage and the Saturn IV uh, booster from Apollo 12 were used to calibrate the Apollo 12 seismic station uh, and help to understand the structure of the Moon, which, as we know, is not Camembert. If you remember one of my, the other podcasts we did about what would happen if the Moon was replaced by Camembert. So we've also tossed a fair few spacecraft at Mars too, and we've had a number of impact, but none of them have impacted the
0: science.
1: For example, Mars 2 slammed into Mars first. Its sister Mars 3 managed to land, but it was in a dust storm and got tipped over uh, and worked for about 20 seconds. Mars 6 also crashed. Mars Climate Orbiter was famous for plunging into the Martian atmosphere because of a confusion between metric and imperial uh, units. Meant that the you know, the orbiter instead of orbiting, plunged into the atmosphere. The Mars Polar Lander crashed. Also, Beagle Two we thought had crashed, but it in fact landed safely. However, solar panels didn't fold out properly, and they blocked the transmission system, so like it couldn't talk back to Earth. And it remained lost until Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter found it 12 years later. Again, none of these impacts were to gain science info, oh. For Venus, Venera 4 was designed to crash on the surface after gathering atmospheric data. So the impact was not for science itself, but everything coming through the atmosphere before a crash was. We've had a lot of emphasis on Mars and the Moon, but in fact, the first soft landing on another planet was on Venus. So that was, Venera 7 was the first soft landing on another planet in 1972. Veneras 4 and 6 were parachute atmospheric probes that sort of made softish landings after the pressure of of, uh, Venus's atmosphere crushed them into um, scrunchy tin cans. There's also been lots of, of balloon missions where eventually the uh, the uh, instruments landed on uh, Venus's surface after the balloon popped. But again, the impact itself was not for science. The Cassini orbiter was deliberately plunged into Saturn's atmosphere to prevent contamination of Saturn's moons. The Cassini was unintentionally uh, crashing into them. And uh, similarly, Galileo, the Jupiter orbiter, didn't have a fuel to escape gravity's uh, gravity as well at the end of Galileo's life. So it was also deliberately crashed into Jupiter, again, to prevent uh, the possibly contamination of uh, life on Jupiter's moon Europa. Now, while Galileo uh, burning up in the uh, atmosphere of Jupiter was not a science, uh, it had previously dropped a probe into Jupiter's atmosphere. And this was a well, science. However, I'm not sure that a parachuting probe into an atmosphere, which eventually gets thicker and thicker until it's the consistency of liquid uh, metallic hydrogen, can be called an impact, or like a a kind of dribble, eventually. We will leave it up to the pundits to describe whether solely descending into an atmosphere that becomes more and more like molasses can be described as an impact, even though it was a science. So, again, unlike the, the bass dislodge we saw at uh, Didymoon Moon over uh, the past couple of days, all of these impacts were invisible from Earth. DART wasn't the first deliberate asteroid impact. That was the near Shoemaker mission to asteroid Eros. Now, after a successful orbital mission, the atmosphere was put into a slow collision approach to Eros, uh, which ended with a gentle boot on February 12, 2001. And in fact, the spacecraft was undamaged and continued to send science data over two weeks until it shut down because of the way it had landed. The X-ray spectrometer could be still used to analyze the uh, surface of Eros and it was much more sensitive. So it sent back a lot of information. So in one way, the impact was for science, but it wasn't the impact itself. It was the fact that the, the package survived the landing on uh, Eros and uh, was able to continue working. Uh, And in fact, it it didn't sort of run out of juice. It was deliberately turned off because they didn't have any more time. So the next uh, asteroid impacts were Japanese spacecraft, Hayabusa and its successor, Hayabusa 2. Now, both of these used impactors to gouge out a sample of asteroids. These were Aikawa and Rudu, respectively. Now, Hayabusa was using little, Shotgun pellet-like things, and it managed to only contain about a thousand or so grains of material in a series of uh, epic attempts to land and gain material. The whole Hayabusa saga uh, really requires an entire uh, episode itself. Hayabusa 2 uh, used a explosive charge to propel a two-kilogram, two-point-five kilogram sorry, copper projectile into. Uh, Blasting uh, large amounts of material out, and so it managed to sort of collect uh, a substantial amount of material which has been uh, recovered and been parceled out around the world. In contrast, OSIRIS-REx at asteroid Bennu used a nitrogen blast to pick up material. which wasn't uh, as uh, exciting in concept, uh, but it was also very effective. In fact, they they got so much material they couldn't properly close the... uh, sample container. But unlike the Diddy Moon impactor, you couldn't see that from Earth. But This is where the, the impacts uh, uh, themselves were for science. Uh, the Philae lander on Comet 67P was to fire harpoons into the, uh, the comet to anchor it to the surface of the comet. Uh, this failed utterly and the lander bounced away into a crevasse. But in 2005, Comet Temple 1 was visited by the Deep Impact Mission, and this shot a 100 kilogram copper mass at the comet. And like we saw Diddy Moon, they, they got a view of the compact comet from, from both the, the impactor, they had a camera on the copper masses and zoomed into the comet, and a, a camera on Deep Impact Spacecraft, although the Deep Impact spacecraft was a bit further back from the comet than the the uh, uh, mission at uh, Didymus, and you got to see this a uh, uh, light for, for the uh, uh, moon impact. You got to see this the view of the impactor coming in and in and in, and from the uh, spacecraft you got to see. This amazing flash as the impact had hit the comet. And again, you could also, the view from ground based telescopes wasn't as as, as astonishing as we saw for the Didymos Moon combination, but they could still see an incredible brightening of the comet. Uh, This was also picked up by the Hubble spacecraft. Uh, and the, uh, the, the the flash from the spacecraft was incredibly bright. And then uh, a couple of years later, a follow-up mission, similar to the follow-up mission that's going to visit was in a couple of years' time, uh, was able to find the crater caused by the impactor. There, there was a 150-metre crater in the seven-kilometre-long column. Which uh, also had a central peak. So, uh, the, so this impactor was for science, for science, and it told, it told us a lot about the structure of uh, 67P, so Comet Temple 1. Uh, it, uh, basically, it was like the comet was rather fluffy. The material that it excavated was uh, more like talcum powder than sand, which they were expecting. They found clays and dust in the dust. Uh, They found uh, chunks of water ice, uh, which they excavated from uh, deep underneath the surface. And so they got a huge amount of uh, structural information from this impact.
0: It seems that astronomers and space
1: scientists love things that go bang. They do indeed. And our question is, what are we going to blow up the science next?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Ian AstroBlog Musgrave. It's been great speaking with you again. And everyone, step up, step out, look up, and have a great time in the month of October.
1: Exactly. It's going to be a beautiful month, lots to see. And I hope you all have clear skies and good views of Jupiter. Good night, mate. Good night, mate. All the best. To catch you later. Cheers.
0: And remember, Astrophys is free, ad-free and unsponsored. But we're always very happy to recommend that you go to rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com for the very latest and best space news. And in two weeks' time, we bring you a wonderful interview with a brilliant astrophysicist who changed careers from being a special education teacher in New York public schools to a Harvard researcher who is using AI to expose the mysteries of dark matter halos around distant galaxies. You're going to love the work of Anna Maria Delgado. Tune in in two weeks, and till then, keep looking up. See you then. Radio Wave!